This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for your desktop or mobile device. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Also, help us keep Star Trek discussion coming to you each day by becoming a Trek FM patron through Patreon. Get access to exclusive content and become part of the team. You'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Trek FM. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. these books i thought i'd take some light reading in case i got bored welcome everyone to trek fm's dedicated books and comic show i am just one of the hosts here matthew rushing and guys i have a i have a special gift for you uh after the announcement that we made on 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 facebook uh today tuesday the 21st of november and uh this goes out to both of you you are so beautiful to me. Both you and Bruce, Stan and Bruce, you are so beautiful to me. <laughs> I, I have no idea how we're going to fill those uh, shoes on this show. <laughs> Actually, I'm kind of glad now that he's leaving. <laughs> <laughs> oh god oh, i i just had to because somebody mentioned the the singing and oh man uh it i i definitely have had the time of my life maybe that'll be the end song when i leave <laughs> uh, who knows uh you never know but uh, thank you so much for everybody uh for your kind words and uh i couldn't be prouder of the hands that i'm leaving the show in and of course I, I feel like that I'll probably be back more than I think I'm going to just because I still love the material. I still love what we're talking about. And um, it, it it's just a, a joy to have been part of the network on this show. Obviously, still be doing the Orb in the 602 Club. But um, guys, wow. Uh, I, I feel so honored to pass the show on to you guys because... Your love and passion for Star Trek books equals or is greater than my own. And I, I can't wait to be able to actually listen to the show as a listener <laughs> and hear what you guys bring up and <laughs> yeah, have to talk about. And uh, the books that you're reading uh, that, that I haven't read yet or the maybe ones that I have. So um, I'm really excited where we're going to have the show go in uh, 2017. And I think we're going to have a great, strong year. Which I guess leads me to some great news that we got today, Dan, that you were able to dig up. Tell everybody what we've got coming up here in 2016. Yeah, this is pretty exciting. So we have another announcement of one of the new novels coming next year in 2017. And this one is another Una McCormick novel, who's I think a favorite of of, of us, uh, Deep Space Nine, Enigma Tales. 
Anyway, yeah, we've got the, the publisher's description here. Elam Garrick has ascended to Castellan of the Cardassian Union, but despite his soaring popularity, the imminent publication of a report exposing his people's war crimes during the occupation on Bajor looks likely to set the military against him. Into this tense situation come Dr. Catherine Pulaski, visiting Cardassia Prime to accept an award on behalf of the team that solved the Andorian genetic crisis, and Dr. Peter Alden, formerly of Starfleet Intelligence. The two soon find themselves at odds with Garrick and embroiled in the politics of the prestigious University of the Union, where a new head is about to be appointed. Among the frontrunners is one of Cardassia's most respected public figures, Professor Natima Lang, but the discovery of a hidden archive from the last years before the Dominion War could destroy Lang's reputation. As Pulaski and Alden become drawn into a deadly game to exonerate Lang, their confrontation escalates with Castellan Garrick, a conflicted leader treading a fine line between the bright hopes for Cardassia's future and the dark secrets still buried in its past. That sounds exciting. <laughs> Except it's not <laughs> Deep Space Nine, like the title says, but it's definitely Una and Cardassians, which is a good combination because she knows how to write Cardassians, which is really exciting. And I also find it interesting, this is very unusual that we find in here that in this description, it says that Pulaski finds herself at odds with Garrick. It, does Pulaski find herself at odds with people very often? It, it does seem like she does that quite a bit. As far as I know, she's very personable and gets along with everyone she meets. I mean, this is a total character turn. <clears throat> What's so weird is that if you look up amiable in the dictionary, her picture is not there. So, <laughs> I think this book sounds really interesting. I, I'm really excited here because, you know, we have uh, Dr. Peter Alden back and, you know, his kind of clandestine behavior throughout Una's books with Brinkmanship and then, of course, The Missing. You know, we, we've really seen this character kind of grow and come into his own, but it sounds like he's going to be drawn back into a more espionage-heavy plot line, which is very exciting. And the idea of Garrick having trouble moving forward and maybe letting go of some of, not just, not really his personal demons, but his normal, you know, mode of operandi, you know, his, 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 his M.O., I, I think is going to be very interesting. How do you let that go when something's been pretty successful for you, you know, uh, and how do you uh, worry that your own dark secrets don't come out, the, the ones you might? I, all of this, it just sounds utterly fascinating, and, and it definitely sounds like it, it's right up Una's alley. And so what, that would be... What, what if we rebranded the books? I just This is just coming to me. What if we rebrand her Cardassian books, Keeping Up with the Cardassians? <laughs> I like it. <laughs> Absolutely. I love all of her books that kind of center, I mean, she writes Garrick especially, just perfectly. And uh, yeah, the, these book titles, I mean, they've, they're they all borrowed from Cardassian literature, right? We had uh, The Neverending Sacrifice, which is a Cardassian novel. And then we had The Crimson Shadow, which comes from Meditations on a Crimson Shadow, another Cardassian book. Which uh, and and then Enigma Tales, which is a, a genre of Cardassian literature, if I remember correctly, and so yeah, it's like this should be kind of a little separate thing where it all takes place on Cardassia, and 
Una McCormick just writes Garrick brilliantly and and that's what she does and I love it and I can't wait. <laughs> I'm just impressed Dan that you know Cardassian literature. Like I didn't even pick up on that. Like <laughs> do you go to Cardassian libraries or part of a Cardassian book club cuz I haven't read these Cardassian books from Cardassia. Dan actually has the largest collection of Cardassian works here on earth on his bookshelves behind us. You you can't see them. <laughs> Bruce, because he's in the way, but yeah, that's where they're housed, is at Dan's new uh, abode. Absolutely. Well, I mean, I had the opportunity of meeting a Cardassian uh, author when he was in exile on Vulcan, so uh, yeah, no. (laughs) Actually, the real truth is I'm doing a big rewatch of Deep Space Nine with a friend who's never seen it, (laughs) and this has all come up recently in the ones I've watched, so... Got it, yes. Because I'm I'm doing a rewatch, but I'm obviously further behind than you are right now. So I'm in season two. So I've got a lot of catching up to do in my rewatch. But but it's interesting to me that they actually will have Pulaski. I'm, I'm bringing her up again, only because she's not that well-liked of a character, but we've gotten quite a bit of Pulaski lately. And that's surprising to me. I would think the editors would be like, no, let's, let's stay away from Pulaski. She's not well-liked. But I have to say, I mean, I, I like expanding her character. I think, you know, representing her in these novels... It's not that I didn't like her before, but I'm liking her even better now. And I think pitting her against Garrick is going to be a lot of fun. Because I want to see what Garrick does to Pulaski. Or what (laughs) she does to him. Hmm. I am really excited about this um, because I thought that Pulaski did... uh, And the character work that was done with her by Una in The Missing was really interesting and a lot of fun. Especially with her and Crusher working together. So... Uh, seeing her back in her more familiar role of being an antagonist should be very interesting. I will say that the only thing that I would I would kind of like to see revolving around Deep Space Nine is a way somehow in the Trek literature to kind of make Deep Space Nine feel more whole as a series again. You know, when I think of the Voyager series, the books very much a whole. Uh, you know, you don't have like a bunch of different books in the series all kind of telling different parts of different stories and everything. And I just love to have that back for the Deep Space Nine series, especially since it was the one that started all of this with the relaunches. You know, uh, Enterprise. Enterprise still feels very much like the show, even though the, the characters are all in different places. It's all one series and everything's taking place in it, you know. For all intents and purposes, the, the, the next generation still feels very familiar, uh, you know, uh, even though you've got different characters in different places. And, of course, you've got your own Titan series now. But there's just something about Deep Space Nine that it almost feels hollow sometimes because there's just there's so many different things happening in different places. And I'd less love to be able to see more of that character group kind of find their way back to Deep Space Nine. So more of the Deep Space Nine story could be happening together rather than separately. I don't, I don't know. What are, you, what are your guys' thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm really hard-pressed to disagree with you on that one. Uh, you know, even though we've gotten some good stories, uh, I, I think I'm, I might be one of the few people out there that really, really, really liked Force in Motion, for example. But it's a very small side story that only involves a couple characters. You're right. There is kind of this lack of a cohesive um, 
coming together of Deep Space Nine. You know, when when they started the new station and uh, they commissioned, you know, the new station under Roe, I kind of felt like they were going to, you know, all come together at that point and move forward and we, it would feel like the series again. But that's never really happened. And I, I hate to say it, but unlike The Next Generation and the Voyager relaunches, a lot of these new characters I'm really not connecting with. Like, I, I can't tell you three things about Commander Stinson, for example. I have, I, I have no grasp on what his character is. He created the bro code. Yeah. <laughs> he loves to wear suits and he will do anything to make sure that his other bros are taken care <laughs> That's of. That's exactly Those it. Those are the three things I know about him. Yeah. So suit up. The only thing about him is that I picture Neil Patrick Harris. That's that's the only <laughs> thing about that character. I just, I, yeah, I just haven't connected them to them the way I have like, you know, Chen on Next Generation or, or Conlon on Voyager. You know, it's just, I hate to say it, but we've got a few duds that just, eh, I'm, I'm not really there with, unfortunately. Yeah, I, I was just going to say that it, it seems more like the Deep Space Nine books are more anthology stories. That they're they're not all really connected, or they're loosely connected. They're all taking place at different places in the universe with a different set of characters, and not really feeling, or and even with a lot of guest characters from different series that are involved. Like we're just saying, Pulaski in a Deep Space Nine book. It'd be great at some point to bring your Deep Space Nine cast, and I'm saying cast in this case because I'm talking about those characters that were on the original series, bring them back to the station, this new station, along with Cisco, and let's have a good group crew adventure with the Deep Space Nine group, that crew. Get them together. It's fine that Ezri's off doing something on the Avatine or, or you know, but you can still find ways to bring them in. But I would, I would like to see that eventually. Well, I didn't. And this is interesting. Uh, gosh. Let's do a thought experiment then uh, here on Literary Tracks uh, before we jump into the feature. What would be the ways in which you feel like story-wise where everything is? How how would you guys make that happen? Bruce, what would you do to, to bring the crew back kind of more organically to the station to make somebody like a Cisco fit in or even a Kira, or, I mean, because uh, we have people in some really weird places, you know, it, it's, again, it just all kind of feels up in the air, and I have trouble even remembering where everybody actually is. So what what would what would you guys do? What, what are some of your ideas to, to find a way to maybe fix the DS9 problem that we're kind of putting our finger on right now? I mean, now? I would like to see Cisco on the USS Robinson have one starship adventure of him as captain of the starship, but something happens towards the end of that that brings him back to Deep Space Nine. There's some event, some big event going on that he has to come back and maybe oversee um, some starships that have to deal with this. He He's promoted to a Commodore. We have enough admirals. Everybody's being promoted to Admiral. So let's give him Commodore. Let's give him something a little different. And he's back on the station, and Roe is the captain, he's the Commodore, and, you know, maybe there's something with, you know, the Bajorans and their religion that, that Kira has to come back to the station at the same time. Maybe there's something, some story around that. And that just kind of pulls them all back in. Um, and maybe not 
quite everybody's there, but the majority of the characters are there. Yeah, no, I mean, that would be absolutely ideal to get kind of Cisco back in a central role. And, you know, if if we're throwing stuff out there, you know, why not throw in the Aventine, make it assigned to the Bajoran sector? So you've got Captain Ezri Dax uh, reporting to Commodore Cisco every once in a while as well. And you can have, you know, it kind of be a, a patrol ship along with the Defiant in that region of space. I mean... You know, we've we've got all the players. I, I think the possibilities are kind of endless. You can find any number of reasons to bring them all back together. And two, I mean, if we're bringing back the Aventine, that could also be the ship that goes and explores the Gamma Quadrant in the place of the Robinson, maybe. Uh, if we're bringing, you know, Cisco back to the station because he's a Commodore, he's overseeing maybe the fleet uh, that's in that sector. And then, of course, going into the Gamma Quadrant, he makes sure that it's all working together correctly and whatnot. And, you know, Deep Space Nine seems like it'd still be a pretty significant sector with the Typhon Pact and uh, all all of the different races that are in the Typhon Pact in that area. And then, of course, with the Cardassian border. So I I think you just have some great storylines, and I love your ideas. Both of you guys, I think, have hit on some things that I would love to see because... I think what this is, is this, we are fans of the series, and we realize the reality, people don't stay on the same ship or the same station, or that's just not how it works, especially in the military, you know, I have a wife who's in the military, that's not how it works, you know, you don't stay in the same place for very long most of the time, but this is Star Trek, (laughs) and uh, what draws us to these different books and these different series are the characters that we fell in love with that we watched on these series. And so when we pick up a Deep Space Nine book, we kind of, I think, in your mind, you're thinking, oh, you know, Deep Space Nine, Cisco, Kira, Odo, you know, you you think of all those characters. And for the most part, a lot of those characters haven't all been in the same book in a long time. So I think that's something just, uh, it was a good conversation. It was worth having. Because it's something that I think I've been feeling. If there's anything that in Trek Lit that I would love to see done differently that I would enjoy more, I think it's that. You know, because I always love picking up the Next Generation books to see where the the crew is going to be next. You know, Picard and Worf and Crusher and all the characters have come, like you said, Chen and all these other characters that I've actually come to accept being just that they're the Enterprise now. Uh, same thing with with Voyager and all the different crews on the different ships there in the Gamma Quadrant and how interesting that all is too. So, yeah, I think that would be wonderful to be able to see. I think the reason we're saying that is because we love Deep Space Nine and we want to love the stories that come out of it as well for the books. And so uh, I'd love to have everybody else's feedback. I, hit us up on Facebook, facebook.com slash trekfm, or of course the Babel Conference, our listeners-only discussion group. You can find that, um, type Babel into the search field on Facebook, or if you're at our website, hit discussion on any of the menu bars. And our website is trek.fm. Of course, you can find us on Twitter at trekfm. You can leave us a voicemail over on speakpipe.com slash trekfm. And Man, I don't think we ever had a voicemail on this show. That would be great. And then you can also find us over uh, through just, uh, is is email now the new snail mail, guys? <laughs> yeah. Hmm. I, I, I 
don't even know what our email address is. How bad is that? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> well, the best way to do that is go to trek.fm slash contact, choose a show, choose Literary Treks, and that'll come straight over to us, and uh, we'll be able to respond in kind. And then, of course, uh, Bruce, we've got the Goodreads group over there, and uh, why should everybody check that out? Well, because we also, in the Goodreads group, list the upcoming books that we're going to cover here on the show. So being part of that group, you get to see what's coming up so you can read along with us. Plus, there's all the discussions that we can have in that group about the books that we're reviewing. Or anybody can post any kind of subject matter regarding books that they're currently reading or, or want to read or whatever and ask other readers about what they think. So it's a big open group that you can join and uh, join in all the fun of talking Star Trek books. Gentlemen, I am so excited to be talking about this book. This book has been on my kind of short list for a long time to talk about, and it's just been one of those that I will just forget about, and then it'll come back. And so legitimately made a list of books that I wanted to try and cover before I officially left literary tracks and this was one of them and it's best destiny so i have a quick question before we even dive into had either of you guys read this one because this is one that had just escaped me throughout the years i did actually read this uh i would say probably around the time that it came out because i remember star trek 6 being the first star trek movie i saw in the theater and absolutely loved it and probably saw this on the bookshelf when it came out in hardcover fairly shortly thereafter and begged my parents to get it. And I absolutely remember reading this story and it really having an impact on me as a kid. Cause I would have been probably around 11, 11 or 12 maybe uh, when I read this story. So yeah, it, it, I, a lot of times rereading it this time around, a lot of it was just like flashing me back to reading it as a kid and I totally remembered a lot of the really pivotal moments in this book so uh yeah this was uh this was a really big book for me I started reading Star Trek novels summer of 1990 and this came out in 92 so I did buy this when it came out I have my hardcover right here from back when I bought it and I know I read it at the time it came out just like Dan did I didn't have to beg my parents for money because I was an adult by then but but I, and i had a job finally at that point i finally had a job i would you know i had been looking for a job for like a year at that point but i finally had a job i bought this book i remember reading it but i haven't read it since and i re vaguely remembered some of the things in this book but i was very interested to get back into it because it's been so long since i've read it and i thought i'm sure there's a lot of things i'm forgetting about and i wanted to see what this experience was going to be like this time compared to when I originally read it. And I will reveal that later in the show. Ooh, <laughs> look at that. Laying down the pipe for what's coming up. Oh, I like it. I, yeah, I had never read this one before, and so I was really excited to dive into this because it was one of those uh, hardcover books that you would get for Star Trek, you know, and... That was always really special when the hardcover books came out because it's, it's almost like you felt like they had gone the extra mile with the story, hopefully, to justify the hardcover expense back in the day before, you know, Barnes & Noble was really huge and you really were paying like 20 bucks for a book. They were like the, the movies <laughs> so, or the season ender cliffhangers. Like 
if you didn't read any other book, you read those ones because they were big. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And this one, I think, is really fascinating, too, to add to the history of it coming in. I remember when Star Trek 09 came out and they were talking to the writers about things that had influenced them. And this is actually one of the influences on them. They really liked Best Destiny as a story. And I can understand why, because they just kind of took some of the story elements from this and moved them over to their story and kind of recrafted and recreated them. But I see a lot of the character of early Kirk in this story in the character that we get in 09. So, I, yeah, that's a really neat thing when you think about that. If you guys want a little background into, you know, where the writers for 09 got some of their ideas, this is prime real estate. I remember when, you know, they were talking about 09 coming out and a lot of the writers were giving interviews here and there. And this, like you said, got mentioned as uh, something that the writers liked and were using as kind of source material. And that actually made me really excited for Star Trek 09 uh, because I'd love this book so much. And also retroactively having seen Star Trek 09, being able to picture George Kirk now as uh, Chris Hemsworth is kind of cool. Yes, yes, I did the same thing. I pictured him. I also pictured the kid who drove the car off into the quarry. I pictured him a little older as the 16-year-old Kirk in this book. And, and, and that really works, believe me, because he's defiant in, in Star Trek 09, and he is in this book too. And so that little whiny kid works really well in this book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he does. I mean, you could just picture that kid with his headphones on listening to the Beastie Boys. So <laughs> in this book, you really can. That's that's really funny. <laughs> oh, man. Well, OK, so the big draw for this book is that it's the Kirk story. It is the background for why he chooses to go into the Starfleet in the first place. And, you know, the idea for Kirk of your first best destiny of being a starship captain. How did that come about? What do you guys think, especially for both of you who've reread the story, what do you think of this, this story of this Kirk and how he moves from being who he was as a 16-year-old to what we get? I mean, because it's the end of his career the very last, basically, mission that he'll be on, and it's kind of an accident mission, because <laughs> uh, they're on their way home from uh, Star Trek VI. They're, they're on their way to be decommissioned. So uh, how, do you, how do you guys feel like the Kirk story works here in this book? Well, in a lot of ways for me, um, it was really relatable. You know, like as a teenager, I wasn't, uh, you know, I wasn't quite at the level of Kirk here. But I think everybody kind of has those moments. There's one moment, for example, where Kirk talks about uh, wanting to say something that would absolutely hurt his father. And, you know, when that happens, seeing that he kind of scored that hit. And it's at a point in the novel where he kind of is starting to realize, oh, maybe I shouldn't have done that. Maybe, you know, that's not the right choice to make. But I think, you know, every teenager kind of has that moment where they lash out and they, they want to hurt, you know, the people they love and that kind of thing. So, you know, while, you know, a lot of people's stories might not be quite to the extreme that, that Jim Kirk's is here, 
I think there are a lot of moments that a lot of readers will be able to empathize with and uh, at least recognize as being realistic. And the idea of Kirk coming from this background and the lessons he learns here was really, it just made a lot of sense to me because of the kind of person that he ends up being. You know, he he kind of does get a little uh, rough and tumble sometimes, but he is always guided by this very strong morality and uh, sense of ethics that, you know, it was clearly uh, he got from his father here and his role models in his life like Captain April. And if you don't have those, if you don't have those guideposts that kind of steer you in that direction, you know, you can really come to a bad end and really go in the wrong direction. And he was headed down that path if it weren't for him realizing what was going on and making these choices. And that to me was just a really compelling story and really rang true. This story would really work even outside of the Star Trek universe. As I was reading this, I kept thinking how you really could just change the character names and put it in a different future sci-fi universe, and this story would really work on its own. It doesn't have to be Star Trek, but that's just how good of a story this is. That in the beginning, knowing knowing Kirk as we know him, to know what a jerk of a kid he was... And I don't mean just, he was just, I mean, he was just flat out a jerk at every step of the way. The first half of this book, no matter what his dad said, no matter what anybody did, he always had some jerky comment back to them. He was so arrogant and so defiant and just, I I got to a point where I was like, I don't know if I like this. I mean, I obviously don't care for this kid that much, but to know that this is going to be the future Captain Kirk, I don't know if I like to know that Captain Kirk was a jerk as a kid. I mean, I get that sense in Star Trek 09 and uh, Collision Course was a Shatner verse novel at the Academy and he was kind of a player in in that and and a bit of a jerk in, in that book and that was fine, but this almost seemed a little too much of a really bratty 16 year old and and i'm not saying i don't like the book i really do love the book but man that first half i thought how are we going to get him from point a to point b and then thankfully as this goes along and the situation that they're in which is a life and death situation he has to step up and he finally steps up and he now we see how the boy becomes the man and i mean it just it really got to a point that I didn't want to put the book down because I wanted to get to that end. I wanted to see how he got there because I didn't remember the story in full detail from the first time I read it back in 92. So I was really engrossed in this book and that's really a good sign of good storytelling. So that really sold me on this book. Bruce, uh, we as we were talking behind the scenes uh, on one of those messaging platforms, I can't even remember which one we were on, but... Uh... I I was uh, suggesting some some like names for Kirk and you came up with one that I thought was fantastic. So I think I should give it to you to let everybody know just what you thought of James Kirk. I called him James T. Jerk. <laughs> <laughs> I loved it. It's awesome. It's so true because I am right there with you. The beginning of this book, really the first, oh, I'd say almost half of this book Kirk is so hard to stomach because you just want to haul off and cold cock the kid. He's such a jerk. 
He is such an arrogant little, any word you want to insert there that's derogatory. That's what he is. And I think you're absolutely right because there is a moment that there's a turn that happens with Kirk as they're going through this life and death situation. And Diane Carey is able to make you make that turn with him so that you are fully on his side by the end of the book. And it's only, and I realize this, it's only because the journey only feels legitimate because he was so unlikable in the beginning. And I I thought it was fascinating to see that play out because really, in the end, this story came down to being about fathers and sons. And the really beautiful point of the story about the importance of strong role models for for boys that are are, are male and are men, uh, not just man boys teaching boys how to be man boys, but real men teaching boys how to become men. And you know, I think that was one of the things that was so fascinating is how you know Jimmy's learning. And what it means, and that's what they call Jim Kirk in the book, Jimmy. He's learning from his dad what it means to be a man, slowly, but surely it happens in the book. But his dad is still learning things from April. Robert April is in the book, and seeing and, and still getting advice on, on becoming a better man. So it's like it's a never-ending process, this uh, idea of stewardship and mentorship of boys being passed on manhood from older men and and much older men still passing on what manhood means to you know middle-aged men i mean it's this progression you know it's almost like this circle of life of what it means to become a man and i thought that was just a really really beautiful story in a world which is suffering for strong male leadership for young boys through so many of them, you know, they, they grow up these days without knowing who their father is or, you know, having a father who even cares about them. So I I thought that this was just, it was really a a heartwarming story in that sense. It it, it was, it was one of the, the best parts of like a Star Trek story that you get where it just reaffirms what the best parts of life are supposed to be about. I really appreciated uh, that Diane Carey had that in there about George Kirk still learning things from Robert April, uh, because like I, I, I've been a high school teacher, uh, so along with making me understand how much sixteen-year-old uh, boys can be James T. Jerks, um, <laughs> it also you know, gave me this idea of lifelong learning. And, you know, so applying that in this situation too, like just how to be a man, how to live your life as an honorable man who's selfless, that's something that in a lot of ways, and and Diane Carey writes this in her book, you know, it's it's not something that just you flick a switch and you're there. You know, it is something that everybody works on and continues to develop just like any other uh, learning or any other skill throughout your life. And what I find really interesting too is by the end of the book, that's really juxtaposed between uh, James T. Kirk and the villain of the piece, uh, Roy Moss, you know, who has not spent the last 65 years or however long it is learning and growing 
he's still that same immature boy who never learned what it was to be a man that he was in the beginning. Whereas Kirk has grown and experienced so much so that like even just the turn he makes at the beginning of the novel is just a beginning. You know, it's not, he, he's not all of the sudden the Kirk we know and love. He's just on, on the right path to get there. And I, I really appreciated that message. Yeah. Roy Moss is a reflection of what Kirk could have ended up being. And both of these characters had daddy issues. Roy Moss in this, in the flashback period of most of this book is 19 years old where Kirk, Jimmy, Jimmy jerk is 16 years old and they both have these issues with their father, and the, and Dan, you you you've kind of you've talked about this uh, about the whole choosing the path, and that's what really makes it fascinating to me is that here these two characters had to choose their paths, and and Roy Moss cho- chose the wrong path, even though Jimmy tried to steer him on the right path, he never took that path. And so he lost focus to make a better life. And he's chasing after just trying to almost like prove himself to his father, who's now dead, but just prove that he is somebody and he's not accomplishing that where Jim Kirk takes the right path. And it's interesting to me because, you know, there's good people in this world and you grow up with certain ethics and rules and play fair and follow those rules. And yet there's some people like myself that just don't take chances because we're always following the rules. And the one thing I get from this book is that somebody like Jimmy Kirk, who's a jerk that doesn't necessarily follow the rules and does whatever he wants. Once he gets it, once he knows that how he's supposed to handle himself as an adult, and that is to follow the rules, understand the rules, but also know when you take that chance and you need to break the rules and you know where that fine line is and you know how to balance it. And that is something that I really admire about this character that this book changes the way I look at Kirk. When I think of Kirk, Captain Kirk, you think this may be what he he was like all his life, even as a child. But when you really get to understand where he came from and who his mentors were, it really explains a lot about how he plays the game and the chances he takes and why nobody else in Starfleet is as good as a captain as he is and how Spock is the total opposite of him because he's always playing by the rules. But I think then Spock even learns from Kirk that you got to bend them at times too, and know how to balance that fine line. Couple things that are striking me as is you're talking, Bruce. One of them is is that the reason that Jimmy Kirk doesn't turn out to be like Roy Moss is because he has modeled for him what true manhood is, and uh, which really means to be, as George and, and April put it, be selfless, uh, to not be living for just yourself. To be a real man means to live for others and to give your life for others. That's what he sees modeled, and that's what he begins to model because uh, there's a great scene in the book where Robert says, don't you understand, George, why Kirk, uh, why Jimmy had done what he did? He was thinking like a man. And I love that moment because Jimmy thinking like a man was that he was willing to sacrifice himself for other people. 
And, you know, that's that's really the complete antithesis, I think, to what our I feel like our world really tells people in general, like that, you know, you just go out there and get what you want, you know, and whatever, just look out for number one, all that kind of stuff. And this is really the best of humanity that a person would willingly give up their life for another uh, and later in their lives for, you know, one person or as Kirk will do for billions of people over and over again, you know, and, and I think that's really interesting. Second thing is, is that we don't watch Kirk stay unmentored in his life. We actually see through, you know, the current time period, and I say that in quotes, you know, the, the Star Trek VI time period right after that film. Kirk's mentors of manhood have been Spock and Bones. And those two men have helped pour into him and he's helped pour into them. It's this whole idea of mentorship and brotherhood that really comes together uh, and, and what it truly means to, to be a man. And all of those men, Kirk, Spock, and Bones, have all at one time or another had to realize that they need to lean on each other, you know, and all of this stuff. And so I, the, it, there is such beauty in this story. And then there's that moment where Kirk, who spent, Jimmy Kirk, who spent more than half of this book hating his dad or thinking he hates his dad, there's this moment when he says he, would, he wants nothing more than to just have one thing that people would say, Oh, he's just like his father. And it's just, I mean, I, I'm just like most people. I have my own daddy issues too. So it was just a gorgeous, beautiful, wonderful story in that sense. Yeah, I, I love that you bring up that moment in these notes because that to me was, I, I love that where he, he sees his father and it's like, oh, broad shoulders maybe. I, I don't know. I really want something that like you said, that people say, oh, he's just like his father. He wants one thing. And and that was such a brilliant moment. To me, I, I feel like a big lesson of this book is in order to be a man, I, I feel like a lot of it is empathy. And like like you're talking about sacrificing for other people, you know, be giving and that sort of thing. The one moment that I absolutely loved, and, and I mentioned it before, was where he talks about wanting to score a hit on his father and, and trying to hurt him with words. And at one point, he really, really does. And I think that's where the empathy part really starts to grow, because he asks himself, why didn't it feel any better than this? And then the line that I absolutely love, it says, as though he'd smashed his own head against a wall, he realized for the first time that he wasn't the only one with feelings. And I just absolutely love that. And that really feeds into that whole idea, like you were saying about, there's a, there's a YouTube channel I watch called the Vlog Brothers, and they have this idea that they've kind of put forward. And I really love it. It's called Imagining Others Complexly and realizing that, you know, other people have their own voices and their own multitudes within them and should be respected. And it's like, it's basically just the basis of empathy. And I feel like that's where Kirk's journey begins here to the path of the light side to borrow from a different franchise 
is, you know, just that basic lesson that should be really simple, but it a lot of times really doesn't seem to be simple. A lot of people just don't get it. And that's Kirk's journey in this book, I think, at least for, for the, the first half is not getting that and then finally starting to come to that realization that, you know, other people are worthy of consideration and are other people and have their own feelings. And it's not just about me, you know, and I, I just, I love that. And it's so hard to be empathetic when you're just utterly selfish. Exactly. You know, it's impossible. Uh, and so the true road to empathy is to, to realize, hey, it's not about me. You know, and I, I think that's uh that's a really beautiful lesson that Kirk learns is that it's not really about him at all, you know, and that's a that's a big lesson for any of us to learn, really. I also like the fact that as I'm reading this, and Dan, you mentioned earlier, reading this now in a post Star Trek O nine time frame in our lives where we've seen the influence of this book on that movie and I kept thinking how in Star Trek 09, we see where a young Kirk is at that time when he doesn't have a father. And we think, well, maybe he's rebelling and, and he's rebelling and he's the way he is because he doesn't have that father figure in his life. But now we've got a book where he does have that father and he's still rebelling and he still doesn't have that focus of, I want to be a Starfleet officer someday and I'm, I'm against the rules and I'm against everything that everybody wants for me. I'm going to, if they say right, I'm going to say left. And so it's interesting how the character from both situations ends up kind of being the same adolescent and then growing up to be that person who the light goes off on and says, I can be better and I'm going to join Starfleet. So I enjoyed seeing how this book influenced that movie, but also how those two timelines kind of are parallel to each other, but different, but kind of end up in the same place. Well, and, and that's one of the things that I thought was, was really interesting just here about this story is that it just doesn't stay with one theme. <laughs> like there's a bunch of incredible themes here in the book. And the one that I think just kind of slapped me in the face was this whole idea of, of life's not fair. And it really, it first struck when Jimmy Kirk is talking to Veronica and she is, she is on the Enterprise and she's on this mission with, with Kirk and, and uh, George Kirk and, and Robert April and some other people. They're on their way to a planet. There, Jimmy gets a chance to talk to her and she's talking about the fact that she has a biomechanical hand. And she was saying that, uh, you know, she had to prove to Starfleet that basically she could do the same job anybody else did, even if she couldn't use her biomechanical hand. And he's like, well, that's not very fair. And she says to him, the, the quote's like this, and it's just so great. She struck him a wide-eyed look, pursed her lips, and admonished, then you don't know what fair really means. It doesn't mean lowering standards to meet somebody's hopes. It means raising your own hopes to meet standards. What if somebody's life depended on me someday? What if I could get along with the faker and not very well without it? 
or fake hand. Uh, I mean, if one hand can get chewed off, there's no reason this one couldn't. Accidents happen, you know. Standards stayed up. I met him. Suddenly she smiled. Preach, 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 right? Well, I'm kind of proud of myself, I guess. You know, like, she doesn't expect special treatment because something happened to her that she couldn't control. She realizes that the standard, and, and this, is, this is the maturity of the character. She realized there are standards there in Starfleet. There are rules in place for a reason because we need to make sure that everybody can meet this very high standard for being in space and doing all the things that we see these characters do. You can't lower that standard or you're not going to have a very well-run ship or you're just going to have a ship that explodes. Or I mean, so... And this, I mean, this whole thing just runs throughout this book. And I thought, wow, what a great and incredible, well-done message here by actually showing a character who has what we might call a disability because any time her biomechanical hand might stop working. But she's proven herself good enough that she doesn't even need it. Like, she can still do what she needs to do without it. And, like, that to me is is inspirational and incredible well she continues that too because something later happens to her where she has even more disabilities and she's just so cavalier about well you know it is what it is life goes on i'll adjust i've done it before i can do it again and it's like wow what an attitude to have you know Mm. it's you know you can basically chop all her legs and arms off and she'd just be like oh what whatever you know I mean, she's just grateful to be alive, and she knows that, you know, that's just a part of her. It's not the whole of her, and she can still continue to live and contribute as she is. And she rolls with it and moves on, and she makes her decisions, and she deals with the consequences that came with it, but she's going to live on and, and contribute as best as she can, and Starfleet doesn't discriminate. She pointed that out, too, so she still has a place in Starfleet. It's a really strong message and it's one like, and I, I don't know where I got this idea or maybe this book had a bigger impact on me when I was a kid than I thought or something like that. But rereading it this time when Kirk says, you know, well, that's not fair. Like I was exactly right where she was. I was like, what, what the hell are you talking about? That's not fair. That's, that's the definition of fair. Like what are, you know, you, <laughs> she meets the same standards that everyone else has to meet, you know? And, and to me, that was just such a, like something drilled that into me when I was a kid, because I, I immediately reacted to that when I read that, I was like, of course that's fair. Um, so yeah, I was right there with her and it's, a, it's a great message that, you know, I think, like I said, I think I must've internalized very early on because that just strikes me as, the definition of fair like that's what it is is you know you don't just as she said you know you don't lower standards to meet hopes you raise your own abilities and standards to meet the standards laid out and and you know me i maybe i have some friends that are firefighters and they talk about meeting the uh the standards for training and that sort of thing and and you know, a lot of friends who have gone into the military and the same thing. And that's just something to me that seems perfectly logical. Of course, that's the way it should be. Absolutely. Well, and it's so interesting here too, because again, we get back to the mirroring between Roy and Kirk, 
And Kirk, throughout the whole book, is being challenged. He's being thrown ideas at him that he doesn't want to necessarily accept or hear, but he's also seeing them played out, as we talked about, by people who are willing to live out those ideas. And there's this really interesting scene between Roy and Kirk where um, Roy is kind of thinking to himself that he's not used to having somebody around who could smell out his traps or figure things out or anticipate his trouble. Like this whole idea of being challenged uh, intellectually and, uh, you know, physically and in all of these ways, the idea of challenge and how that molds us and shapes us. And even if it's ideas we don't like, even if things we don't want to hear, like how important it is to be shaped by and uh, given the opportunity to hone ourselves on the ideas and opinions of others, even when it's something we don't want to hear. Like that I thought was really cool because you watch these two people and uh, Jimmy Kirk and Roy and the way in which they deal with that. And Kirk allows that to finally be able to have an impact on him. But part of that is because he sees played out that that's how quote unquote good people behave. You know, all of the people, whether it's Veronica, Robert April, uh, his dad, George Kirk, he's seeing all of these people do the same thing. You know, be challenged by ideas, be challenged by standards, be challenged by things, even if they're hard, and change themselves accordingly whereas Roy has never really had that and just it, it's really fascinating to to be able to see that play out because again I think it's apropos for our society which is fantastic because I the favorite scene of mine is when Kirk starts yelling when Jimmy Kirk starts yelling at Roy and he's like so you've had a bad father so what parents don't last forever Good or bad, get over it. Comes a time when you got no excuse. Poor me, I had a bad life, so I get to go out and be bad to others. He says, like hell you do. You've been dragging that fat corpse around for 45 years, waiting for it to sit up and say, son, you did a good job. It's not going to happen. You're never going to get his recognition. You're going to have to grow the hell up. And like, wow. I don't I don't know if... if uh, James Kirk doesn't just have a message for all of society these days, but like, so true. Stop blaming people for your problems. Go out there and do what you need to do, just like everybody else who's gone out there and done what they need to do. That's the only way you're ever going to be successful. You know, crap's going to happen to you that you can't control. That's why the saying is, S happens, because it does. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, we, we all got a bad deck sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> this uh, This really struck me as as really interesting when i was uh, younger i was a ski racer and like that's a sport that it's just you you know like you stand in that starting gate listening to the timer count down and you shove off and you you go through the course and you're not racing next to somebody you're not relying on a team it's just you versus the clock to get down that hill through the gates as fast as possible and that's something that I remember my coaches really dry, drilling into me if I had a bad run. They would, you know, they would ask me like, 
what happened? What did you do? You know, and there, you, you could never, you could never say, well, you know, teammate X should have passed me the ball or something, you know, it was just you. And so that was really something that I remember learning very early on that, you know, whatever your problems, whatever's happening, you have to conquer it yourself. And, uh, you can't just blame everyone around you for what goes wrong. And, and, you know, that's a lesson that I carried through life. And here again, Kirk learns this lesson through very different circumstances, life and death circumstances. And it's something that Roy Moss just never learns. He never matures. He never grows up. He never gets that, uh, lesson drilled into him and it's you know, you almost feel sympathy for him because he just didn't learn he didn't get that he didn't step up and learn that lesson and what a waste of a life yeah but why didn't he why didn't he learn that lesson what was it is because i think it's because the parents behind these two people jimmy kirk had a solid foundation in his parents his dad was there for him. No matter how much Jimmy resisted his dad at first, I mean, he had a solid foundation. And even in Robert April, he had good mentors. Roy was on the opposite side of that. His dad could give a flying crap about him. I mean, his dad wanted to kill him several times. Everything Roy said, his dad's like, you don't know what you're talking about. You're stupid. I know what to do. He was Roy's dad was competing with Roy and Roy was competing with his dad. I mean, if anything, mm -hmm. this book should be, it should be a guide to parenting because it can show you, you know, how good of a parent you are depends how, what direction and choices that your child's going to make. And if mm -hmm. you're going to have a kid that's going to make the right decisions, you need to be there for that child and you need to support that child. Unlike Rex Moss, who doesn't support his son, Roy, and look what, look what's happened. I mean, you know, I don't remember at the time when I read this, but I wasn't a parent. But, you know, and now as a parent, this is obvious to me that, you know, what I'm doing is putting the foundation there for my children to have the right state of mind to make the right decisions so that they are successful and they and they can move on and they can accomplish things and not, you know, they can take those hits and life isn't fair, but take those hits and, and, you know, just recover from them, just move on and keep trying. And that this book is a parenting guide, in my opinion. Absolutely. And I, I don't want to, I don't want to come across sounding unsympathetic because I, I really am like Roy was dealt a very crappy hand, obviously. And I would almost say that like that's his disability. Like I could draw a parallel between Roy Moss and Veronica in this book. Veronica lost her hand and that was her disability and she overcame that. And Roy, I I obviously, you know, does not have the leadership and the and the um the mentor in life that he needed to succeed. But and, and again, it, it sounds unsympathetic. But he needed to find it in himself to overcome that and get past that. And it's very difficult and it's very sad that he was unable to. And I think that's a very, very difficult thing to do. But well, and that is a, a really interesting point because it, it really ties into the whole idea that respect has to be earned. And, you know, George Kirk earns the respect of his son 
by working through his son's temperament, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and doing all he can to steer his son in a correct manner. Roy's father doesn't do that, obviously. And so you're right. He does have that disadvantage of having a father who actually doesn't really care about him. And so what he learns is that, no, it is all, everybody's out for themselves. Uh, but I also think it, that is a part of Kirk from the beginning of the book that actually helps him. Because for Kirk, destiny is is what you make through your choices. And for Kirk, he understands this idea that it is in the end about the choices that we make that determine where we're going to be and who we're going to become, what our quote-unquote destiny is going to be. You know, uh, the proverb goes, you reap what you sow. That's because that's so true. That's exactly what happens. You know, you make a bunch of bad decisions, you're going to have a bunch of bad crap happen to you in your life. That's just the way the world works, you know. And in that sense, the world is very fair. It's not always going to be a one-for-one because good things can happen to bad people and bad things can happen to good people too. But on a whole, we have that proverb for a reason because it generally tends to be true for people. And I think that's a really big part of this book and it, it really shows, and I like that idea, you know, Kirk wants respect from his father and George tells him no, you know, you, Jimmy, you got to earn that. Uh, you it, it, Respect is something that can't just be given to somebody for no good reason. Respect comes become a, because a person does earn it from you. And then I just, this book is so full of, of like you said, Bruce, like great life lessons that you want to pass on to your mm-hmm. kids. Uh, I feel like I learned great stuff by <laughs> reading this book. Yeah, and unfortunately, I'm you know, he's never... The the tragedy of Roy and Bruce is absolutely right here is he he never did earn that respect from his father, and he was never going to simply because of who his father was. So it it really is a tragedy in that sense for sure. It is so sad because I feel bad for Roy too because even though he wasn't getting that support from his father, Roy was actually somewhat of a genius. I mean, he created these new deflector shields on their ship that Starfleet actually took and created their reflector shields based on what he had put together. I mean, he was the genesis of these new uh, deflector shields. And so he could have had a great career. And, and I mean, he contributed something to Starfleet. And instead of just taking that ownership and becoming just a respectable person, they didn't respect him because of you know how he acted and how he was treating people and such but had he just turned that around he could have been something great and i mean you don't have to be great and you don't have to be a genius to be respected you just got to live your life the right way and just treat people with respect and and take the hardships it's tough but you know just i don't know it it, it it's so easy to say but you know it there's so many elements in our lives that make us who what we are and you know sometimes we're just dealt a bad hand others aren't so you know i i do feel bad for roy i mean he was he was also a jerk (laughs) but you know he he got what he deserved in the end well and there's this really cool thing that's happening with kirk and and a, a big part of this story is kind of this wrestle for control of his soul and who he's going to be and uh honestly 
his the whole first part of the book was his like Billy Joel angry young man phase. If you've never listened to that song, go listen to it because that's exactly who Kirk is. He's just this angry young man and he doesn't know how to handle it. And what I I love is the way that April was able to help him kind of see that there is something about him that's special and that he has this, what April kind of calls dirt in his soul that allows him to be able to see the other side of life. That basically it allows Kirk to be able to understand the gangsters out there, you know, the, the people who just see life from a completely different point of view. And Kirk is able to figure out not mechanics of something, but really be able to sift motivations in people uh, because he can put himself in other people's shoes because he's been on that other side of life, that just angry, frustrated, you know. And I thought that was really special the way that we, we talk about that there is a there is good and bad out there, but there's also a legitimacy to be able to understand the darker side of life because it helps you understand people their motivations, the villains in life, uh, and the people that Kirk ends up coming up against time and time again throughout all of his different missions. You know, that's one of the things that made him so successful was because there was this darkness in him. And so when he says, I need my pain in Star Trek V, well, it's because it's helped him be able to make mostly the best decision through most of his command decisions well it reminds me actually that section reminds me a bit about of uh the next generation episode tapestry where picard Mm, has this uh experience as a kid where he's brash and reckless and you know if you take that away his entire life is different you know he's kind of this meek person who doesn't have the drive that he has to become a captain And I feel like that's very similar with Kirk here. If he hadn't started out in that kind of uh, um, outlaw lifestyle, uh, he wouldn't be the cowboy diplomacy Kirk that we get in the later series. Uh, It's an indelible part of his character that, you know, you don't have Kirk without it. Tapestry is actually one of my favorite episodes. I'm glad you brought that up because there's a lot of similarities here. And I also thought about that line from Star Trek V about needing his pain. I thought that same thing when I was reading this book. Well, and I think the, there was something that was really interesting in here because this book takes place at a time when Starfleet is changing. Uh, and this is obviously bef- way before Enterprise. We have any idea uh, really about that time period before the five-year mission, before even... You know, I mean, Pike has even taken out the Enterprise. I mean, this is way before that. I mean, the Enterprise has just had the paint put on her. Uh, you know, the the decals, basically. She's just been uh, christened and commissioned as the Enterprise. And this whole idea, though, of flexibility and change in the latter half of the story, which is after Star Trek VI, and the idea that they're going to be decommissioning all the Constitution class vessels. And what I thought was really interesting about this whole idea of flexibility and change, 
was that the Constitution class vessels were made for what Kirk calls a, a more savage, unsettled galaxy when we were kind of more on our guard than the new Excelsior class vessels, which are more, you know, they're much more into their science labs and like, you know, all that kind of stuff. And they actually find that there is a real relevance for keeping the Constitution class vessel around because of its adaptability to what it finds. And I thought that that was really interesting, you know, that the, when you even think about the Excelsior class kind of looks like a bloated version uh, in a lot of ways of the Constitution class, which is very lean and mean looking. That kind of thought process of what happens when we start to get comfortable and we forget that we need that ability to adapt and to change to the world around us. And I just thought that was really, really fascinating uh, place to kind of take the storyline in some ways, especially with thinking about why older people like Kirk and all of their experiences are still relevant for something like a Starfleet, even if they're going off into, you know, retirement. You know, it's thought that was really cool i loved it i uh it made me think of kind of the ultimate expression of that which is you know i i wonder how sad kirk would be if he knew in 70 years they'd be sending out these huge galaxy class ships with families aboard and, <laughs> and uh bridges that look like you know holiday inn uh lounges and that kind of thing but yeah it, it's this kind of complacency that um you know, it was really interesting to me and kind of just in the back of my mind, I wondered if, if Diane Carey was kind of commenting on, you know, the next generation and how uh, cushy everything seems. And, you know, that really made me think that, oh, I wonder if she's kind of trying to say something there because, you know, it's kind of well known that she really loves the original series more than, than most of the other Star Treks. But anyway, that might be just me reading a bit too much into that, but it's, it's very true. You know, the, the kind of, idea that someone or something that's been through a lot can be very adaptable. Whereas, uh, you know, the next newest, greatest thing, you know, you get the brand new iPhone that's, you know, really great and you drop it and it shatters and the screen shatters, but you know, your old Motorola flip phone, you can whip it against the wall and it'll still work. <laughs> Makes me think of a can opener. So we have, you know, the old fashioned, you know, can opener manual thing that you you twist it yourself and you're twisting the cans open and we've had a few different electric can openers but we seem to always go back to the old one it seems to be a little more reliable especially with certain cans and things um i know this isn't a cooking show but we could go there <laughs> if you want um <laughs> but i guess it's what what we're kind of saying it's like even something that is new and better there's some things about the old that works better for certain situations. And that's what we saw here with the shields, that the shields of this enterprise work better in this situation than these new shields. Because there's a vulnerability in these new shields that aren't found in, the, in these old shields. Uh, so, you know, even when something's old, maybe you don't throw it out. It's still good. And so, you know, there's, Kirk is still needed and Scotty's still needed 75 years later doing the Starfleet Corps of Engineers, you know, there's still relevance there. 
One of the things that I, I really liked about that whole storyline was just this idea that complacency, you know, breeds trouble uh, and, and, and feeling too comfortable, you know. And I, I liked that idea that kind of seeing the, the world and the universe as it is, which is um, always a place that can be dangerous. It's never going to be safe, you know, and that's really what the Constitution class was made for, which is to try and uh, uh, be adaptable to a, a more unsettled universe. And, you know, uh, even the more sophisticated we get, we still find more and more things that we don't, don't know, you know, and so just never be complacent, never... Uh, as George Kirk says to his son, you know, never underestimate your enemy. That's one of the things. Never underestimate the world or anything like that. So I think that was a really nice, I just, I loved that whole part of the story. I thought it was really fun uh, comment. And it, it made the crew of the Enterprise and that class of ships still seem relevant. Because the book ends with them saying, oh, we, we have a reason why you might not want to decommission all these ships. We, we might still have some use for them. So I thought that was really fun. A um, couple last quick things were just, there are some things that don't jive with anything else, but I thought were kind of fun in the book. Like George Kirk was the one who named the Enterprise. Uh, it, April gave him that honor uh, because of something that he had done. And... Uh, April was the one who really initiated what we know of as the Starship program with uh, the Constitution class ship. So that, that was pretty interesting. And I don't know how that really flies with everything. And, and so, but there's just a lot of fun things here that are, are neat to look back on when we didn't know anything about that Enterprise time Well, period. and just to point and out, so, and, and it's been just as long, but... Those references come from an earlier book that Diane Carey did called Final Frontier, where it's the first, I don't know if it's the first mission of the Enterprise, but it's when the Enterprise is being built and April takes George Kirk to the ship. And uh, at some point during that story, George Kirk does name the ship Enterprise. So if you had to think uh, of a rating then for... Best Destiny, especially for you guys, uh, having read this before, uh, where do you guys end up? This is one of those ones that <laughs> I, I know every week I, I seem to come up with some reason why rating a, a particular book is difficult. But yeah, for this one, for me, it's just it's tied so it's tied so closely to my earliest memories of Star Trek and getting into Star Trek that it, it's really hard to separate those feelings from it and actually reading it this time around i was a little bit scared that it wasn't going to hold up that you know this thing that i remembered so clearly from uh when i was young was going to turn out to be not as good as i remembered i mean there's countless childhood movies that have done that <laughs> to me and so you know don't rewatch them but um this book i found it really held up like there are so many really great lessons in here uh so many things that, like I said, just made me flash back to reading this as a pretty young kid um, that just, you know, really helped inform a lot of things that I really take to heart nowadays. Uh, so I, I really don't think that I can get away with giving this, you know, less than 
five out of five warp flushbacks uh, that alert you to uh, some difficulties on the Bill of Rights. Well, I don't remember the book as well. I mean, I remembered a, a good piece of it, but I honestly didn't remember it being this good. And maybe I enjoyed it better this time than I did then. I don't know. But I like the fact, some of the things we didn't touch on, but I like that a lot of the story is them stranded on this big shuttle craft. Uh, it reminds me of uh, Trip and Read and Enterprise in Shuttle Pod 1 episode. I like those episodes where they're contained in one area and they have to make it through and survive and they're trapped together and it's great character interplay that happens between the characters and there's a bonding that happens during those situations. So I like that part of the story between Robert April and George Kirk and Jimmy and, and the rest of their crew that's there. Um, and also I thought it was interesting too, that we actually have some trans warp long range beaming going on in this book. And I thought, well, now was this the idea that they got from this, did they get the idea for this transwarp beaming in Star Trek 09 and Into Darkness from this book? Um, it's not quite the same thing. It's a little, it's it's a little different. But the basic concept of beaming from one area to all the way you could beam from this planet all the way to Earth is in this book. So I thought that was interesting. But all in all, I was really entertained by this. I thought it had strong messages. I thought it was a perfect book. So if I say it's perfect, that means it's like five out of five. So I give it full deflector shields. Nice. <laughs> I I really do uh, I like this story. And I, I, I had no idea what to expect really going in. And it just the, the themes and the story itself really, really got me. The only thing that I have to say that we didn't really talk about, uh, but I'll just mention here, her prose can be a little bit difficult sometimes. Uh, it doesn't always flow as well as I would like it to, but that doesn't discount how good the story is. So for me, this is really four out of five mechanical hands. Uh, it's just, it really is a, a great story. I, I don't think that I could recommend reading it enough. And wow, I, I just had no idea diving into this one, that it was going to be just gangbusters awesome. Well, a bit of a blast from the past for a couple of us, and uh, sounds like a really positive new reading experience for Matthew as well. So uh, I'd call this definitely a winner this week. I'd say it was a win-win-win. I think Matt did a great job picking this book. <laughs> well, I'm glad I did. I I really am. I'm I'm I'm... It's... One of those things where I'm like, oh, gosh, I'm so glad that we read this book. And and that's one of the things that's been fun about doing this show in, in the first place is that finding those books that you haven't read and you read them, you're like, oh, my gosh, how did I miss this? You know, and so I think that is the phenomenal thing about this and especially a book like 92, you know, it's been around forever. So to finally have gotten a chance to read it and have it still hold up after all this time. That is the sign, as you said earlier, Bruce, of a great book. So, uh, and I'm I'm really glad that uh, you know our associate producers here through Patreon make sure that we get to talk about this stuff each and every week. Ken Tripp, uh, Brandon Shamatella, Bruce Gibson, and Norman Lau all make sure that uh, what we do here on Trek FM and Literary Treks 
keep coming to you each and every week. It's it's a big process to put all of these different shows that we do online every week for you to be able to listen to. And there's just no way we can do it without the help of listeners just like you. So go over to patreon.com slash trekfm and you can see how you can be part of our team and make sure that that does happen. We have some great perks for people who do sign up at different levels, but honestly, every little bit helps. And again, that's patreon.com slash trekfm. Now, Dan, when you're not constantly berating people for how dumb they are and how... Uh, really just you wish that you could hurt them in the deepest, most intimate way possible. You could just find the right thing to say. Where can we find you? <laughs> wow. Uh, did I forget to send your birthday card? <laughs> Actually, you did. It was so unfair. Oh, dude, I, I'm, I'm so sorry. You know, now that I've hurt you, I, I'm realizing that other people have feelings too. I'm so sorry. Um, well, you know, I'll, you can find me on Twitter writing contrite apologies that stick below the 140 character mark. Uh, that's at Kurtrats. That's K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. Uh, you can find me on youtube.com slash Kurtrats Productions and on facebook.com slash Kurtrats Productions as well. And on my website, treklit.com, where I review Star Trek novels, both old and new. And Bruce, when you're not piloting a makeshift airlock into what you think is an engine but actually just turns out to be a scrapyard uh where can we find you well you'll find me a little thinner because the walls of that scrapyard are going to start closing in on me and smushing me and making me real thin but you can find me on twitter at admiral underscore rex that's admiral and then you put the little underline and then rex and you can also find me talking star wars on the star wars report podcast and uh, sometimes on the Star Wars episodes of the 602 Club with Matt Rushing. And Matt, when you're not wearing a cardigan and putting your hands in the pockets, what are you up to? Wow, uh, I love that, um, you know, I'm the wise old April here on the show. That That's fantastic. I can't think of a better character to want to be, I can't honestly. Think, I, I've, I've read <laughs> April in other novels, but for some reason this novel, I kept picturing Michael Caine. Huh. It was really fun, actually. That is kind of, I, that, or I kind of just pictured Santa Claus, really. That's what, they, <laughs> that's what he seems like. So well, you're April, I'm it, currently James T. Jerk, but, you know, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, you could find me on Twitter at MattRushing02. I am here on the network on The Orb doing uh, Deep Space Nine with Chris. Of course, uh, doing the 602 Club, as you mentioned, Bruce. I love having you on there. And a lot of times we'll talk Star Wars, but we also talk all things geeky that aren't Star Trek related. Uh, you can find all the Star Wars episodes there. Star Wars, the 602 Club collection. Both of the feeds are on iTunes. I hope you will check them out. And... If you love Star Wars, can't get enough, check me out on Aggressive Negotiations with John Mills over on the nerdparty.com or on iTunes under Aggressive Negotiations, where we just talk Star Wars each and every week. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And until next time, live long and read on. What do you call that light reading? To each his own, number one.